For April 19th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 668. Quod erat deliciosum. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. It's a story two-hander because I'm I'm Pete and that's Matt. Hey, Matt. That is incorrect. This is Pete. That's Matt. <laughs> well, what I was thinking, Pete, is that we could be acting as each other because we did this whole show about acting last week, right? So right. that I, I, I'm, I am Matt, but I could be playing the part of Pete. Right. And how would I prepare for that? What would I do to like get myself into a frame of mind to play the part of Pete? And you could be Pete, but you could be playing the part of Matt. And what could you be doing now? Uh, to, to prepare yourself for that and like, uh, you know, in a, in a practical way as a, as an artisan, you know, getting <laughs> like, like Daniel Day Lewis. If Daniel Day Lewis were playing either one of us, what would he, you know, what would he be doing to, to really, right. uh, bring about the, um, to bring about the psychological reality that, that he's going to? No, hey, I'm not, that's Pete. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. <laughs> and the answer is he would be making shoes in Italy, right. which is what he does. All the time, right? <laughs> is that, yeah, I mean, I've never, you know, I've not, I've been on Instagram a lot, Pete, and I've never once seen an ad for Daniel Day Lewis shoes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> made in Italy. So I, if, yeah. if I haven't, then like, can he really be making shoes? Are you in- suggesting that he's boxing Hello Fresh meals? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Doing that or like, um, oh, what's the one, what's the one that I get? There's a service that will deliver coffee to your door now. It's like, it's like DoorDash. But uh, only for coffee, and the the rates are lower. So like you you bloop 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 on an app, and a uh, you know a um, ten ninety nine like wage slave shows up at your at your door with a steaming hot cup of coffee. You know, uh, uh, ten to three hundred minutes later, doesn't sound that useful as a service, but it is being heavily advertised on social media as you can as you can imagine. Uh, here in LA. Um, so, Hey, last week, Pete, we, we, uh, we talked about acting. We talked yes. about, um, you know, uh, I, I guess, I don't know, how would you put it? Like a historical overview yeah. or it wasn't the most, it, it wasn't perhaps the, the most organized survey of, of world historical, uh, you know, performance mo- modalities, but we, we followed our bliss and we got to, got to, uh, a lot of different things. I know, would you characterize that conversation differently or specify it somehow? I would suggest that we focused on a historical, theoretical and normative idea of acting. As in, what has acting been in the past? It started with the discussion that the things that we think of as quote unquote normal acting are pretty strange relative to the broader practice over it, over the course of history. We talked about some different theoretical approaches to how one might go about doing it and why one might go about doing it. And then we discussed ways in which those approaches lead to evaluations of things being good or bad and getting away from the notion that there is one particular notion of whether it's good or bad and going toward a notion of the further development of these ideas as more people do more kinds of performance in more media. Right. So it was sort of a it was sort of the the textbook, but the rambly textbook 
idea of, you know, what is acting, right? What? And it was it was polycultural, it was polyepochal, right? It, it was uh, it was as broad as we could get it to be, while also focusing a little bit on a, a primary dichotomy between what, as an actor, you might term outside-in acting and inside-out acting, is mm. how I would it right and that's sort of where we where the current where we we framed the current discussion but, we, but, that, but you would seem to have a lot of other things that you wanted to say about acting and in particular something you wanted to say that was more of the moment about it and we had so much preamble like i wanted to talk about no and and i wanted to talk about india and i wanted to you know it's, and i took a, you know, a bunch of tangents and kind of burned a lot of time and i know that that as the person with formal training on the on the conservatory level in acting, you no doubt have developed in your profession, right, certain thoughts, notions that you wanted to share in more uh, detail. Yes, my dear boy, acting. <laughs> so this is part two of Acting Cast 2021. Sort of, sort of but like hopefully taking a uh, one hopes that we'll take a different a different tack. And yeah, I actually kind of wanted to to address it as kind of a body of uh, a body of practical wisdom. We didn't get we didn't get the the chance to. Because our conversation just went, took on a life of its own, as all the best ones do, and sort of went in the uh, direction that it went. I had a kind of a fundamental observation that I wanted to sort of throw out there and to, you know, uh, lay before you to, to get your, get your reaction to it. And actually, I, I think our, you know, preamble, our, uh, prolegomenon, right, would, uh, serves us well in this, um, in this respect, because we talked about sort of different, different sort of theor- theoretical ideas uh different you know things of like what you do what you do as an actor like practical things that that you do and what what are you trying to do is it like are you trying to create a psychological reality like are you you know the the way that uh i sort of associated that mode with the 19th century or are you trying to like create something that is you know in strict adherence to to pre-established cultural forms like even even to the point of like using masks so that the appearance of certain characters are standardized and stuff like that that's more uh i guess what you just called like an outside in approach but it's you know it's different but all these things are sort of are practical and they they aim at the uh, uh, they aim at the, the kind of the person who's about to do some acting, who's about to sit down to a big plate of acting and eat it all up, <laughs> chew big plate of scenery and, and chew yeah. every, every single bit of it. But there's another way to, to, um, there's another way to look at it, which is that when we analyze or uh, not even analyze, when we are confronted with works of, of uh dr- dramatic you know storytelling and actually first first tangent first tangent okay <laughs> because i i started thinking as this as we sort of talked about this through the week that we need you need a kind of typology that maybe happens in concentric circles right where at the the widest circle is sort of all artificial behavior you know mm-hmm. um that and by all artificial behavior, I mean like what when you when you tell your kid that Santa is bringing presents, you know, are you acting per se, right? <laughs> like you're you're doing a you're doing some of the similar things. That is to say, you're kind of creating a pretend reality and sustaining it through performance. Um, in this case, like o- over a long period of time, you know, uh, and the, but the pretend reality is not in service of like dramatic storytelling. You know, the pretend reality is, is in service of like childlike wonder and eventual dissolution, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, that like, uh, you know, uh, 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 there's, so there's like art, all kind of artifice, all sort of artificial behavior. Then uh, within that, uh, 
the concentric next concentric circle that I'm concerned with is like maybe performance practice, you know, things you do in front of other people uh, for one reason or for one reason or another, you know, and then you, you can kind of step in and step in and step in till we get to the, to the circle that we're concerned with the idea of, you know, the idea of acting as it would be in a stage play in a film in a, um, you know, I don't know, in a, 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 a uh, no drama in a, a d- narrative dance, <laughs> You know, or something, something like that. That is, you know, the, the, um, the circle at, at which we're, we're sort of focusing. Um, like is, I don't know, are, are talking heads on, on television news programs acting per se? Like in some sense, yes. (laughs) Are PR, are PR people acting? Like, of course, uh, in a way, but, uh, that's not sort of the level that, that we're concerned with. So, so like I wanted to, well, I, sorry, I'll stick a pin in that and just say, uh, I, you know, I shouldn't go down the tangent without giving you a chance to comment. So before I continue, do you want to jump in on that? Let's not go back and re litigate everything we talked about last week. So, Granted, yes, <laughs> there are lots of different things that might be determined to be acting, and we are talking about this specific stuff. Like when we say that you know Sebastian Stan is being the Winter Soldier in the Falcon, the Winter Soldier, <laughs> he's he's acting. Okay, got it. That's where we're at. All right, great. We're in that subset of the broader activity, right? So that that when we watch Sebastian Stan at at uh, being the Winter Soldier, and we sort of think about what Sebastian Stan is the 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 Winter Soldier brings to you know the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, right? We're not actually really concerned with his you know technical knowledge, right? With his uh, what did you say before? His conservatory training, his you know. Um, his process as it often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. As the, as James Lipton and in inside the actor studio would have it. Like we, you know, we don't care. You know, when you experience a, a work of, of dramatic storytelling, whether on stage or screen, there's a lot of kind of multimedia things happening. There's like text and there's lights and there's editing and, uh, you know, there's costume. There's like a visual component. In the case of film, there's, there's editing and soundtrack and, you know, um, all of these things and the acting such as it is, is, um, you know, the acting is one piece of that. And, and sometimes the most important piece, sometimes not even the most, uh, the most important piece. And I guess the observation that, that I wanted to make is that, um, the, the, you know, as you say, I've, have done it for a certain period of time as, as I, I did it professionally, uh, like, um, uh, by do it, I mean, uh, get employment as an actor. Um, and so like, I, I tend to think of it as, as a body of, uh, a body of practical knowledge. And I, I, you know, I, I usually tend to want to object to people kind of making claims about it as a, you know, as a thing that, that, kind of has meaning in this, this other way, because I, I sort of want to ex- insist that it's a body of, of practical knowledge because that's how the people who practice it think about it, you know? Right, and right, right. in, in my mind, that's the understanding that should be privileged, you know, over the other understanding. But I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that I'm, I'm wrong about that, or at least that that claim is not true all the time. Uh, and that like, um, 
the, we can kind of talk about like really different different ways of of appreciating and understanding acting one you know rhymes with what what we talked about last week there are theories there are techniques there are aims there are goals there are kind of like artistic aspirations and stuff like that um but the other is what you know what the effect of of that effort is you know on on the part of uh on the part of the spectator you know um let me put it another way I'll, I'll i'll make one metaphor just to kind of give the the uh give us a sense of what i'm saying and then and then sort of leave it to you to see if this uh, sparks anything for you if you want to go go off uh if you look at you know a church or a great work of architecture or, you know you're on <laughs> you're on vacation in italy or something and you're going to like look at a at a beautiful historical church right um and you look at the effect that this that this church has uh you sort of think about it and you you are overwhelmed by it or you feel certain things about it and you like uh appreciate it in a certain way and you you like wonder about it and you think about the history of it and all the people who have you know walked through it in their time and the, you know you can have a whole bunch of complex reactions to it um you don't think about the uh training of the person who joined the beams you know uh unless you are a unless you're an architect or something unless you are a carpenter yourself um right uh and that like uh and that's your that's your thing. You don't you don't think about the the ways in which the stones were chiseled to to put them into a, a particular shape. Um, that is to say, it would take really specialist knowledge. It would take really specialist like uh, engagement um, to do that and make that you know meaningful in any substantial way to you. And like in in a similar way, I, w- I wonder how many things are like this. Uh, in life, this, this kind of claim that I'm making about acting where the, the, um, there is this very strong disconnect, uh, a pronounced disconnect between, um, what it takes to do it and kind of what it ultimately means in the context for which it's, uh, for which it's intended. Anyway, uh, I, I hand it over to you to, to see if that sparks anything for you or if you, sure. you know, want to take that in any direction in particular. So it makes me think about something that I think about a lot. Uh, at least Stan. I think, no. yeah, <laughs> I actually, did I talk to you about how I was watching old Sebastian Stan interviews in Romanian? And that's why he had come to mind that <laughs> one thing that you probably aren't aware of watching Sebastian Stan in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that he was born in communist Romania. What? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he grew up in the United States for the most part. He grew up in Vienna as a child. Right. As a as a basically as an expat refugee. And then his mother remarried and he moved to the United States and he grew up around New York as a sort of exotic Eastern European, uh, you know, uh, actor boy. And uh, <laughs> which, which is more his description of it than mine. Right. This idea that, like, he would tell everybody about how he grew up in communism and, and, and talk a good game, you know, flirting with girls when he's like 17 years old. But at any rate, um, seeing it is always interesting to me to see people see famous people who I've seen act give interviews in another language Mm. because it further reinforces the idea that the thing that they are doing when they are acting is not necessarily the thing that they experience when they're being people. Uh, And and that sort of really calls it into relief. I mean, what are some of the big examples of this? Well, the, the big one, I think we might've talked about, uh, 
Bradley Cooper giving interviews in French sure. at one point. Yeah, speaks and like it, pretty good colloquial French, I'm given to understand. Yeah. And Ben Affleck giving interviews in Spanish is fun because he speaks fast Mexico City style Spanish uh, because he apparently did a show there when he was like 13. And it's not perfect, but it's it's he sounds like a totally different person. Uh. Right. Um, it, he doesn't sound like Mayor Pete. Right. He sounds like a, a Mexican guy uh, uh, to an, <laughs> in terms of his accent. Right. Um, so it's a pretty good accent. He's still Ben Affleck, but the tone of his voice is totally different. Sebastian Stan speaking Romanian, his voice gets much lower and Ben Affleck speaking uh, Spanish, his voice gets much higher. Uh, but I'm trying to think of other, other, uh, but, but what I really wanted to say was, um, cause I want to talk about something that I do think about a lot, which introduces an, a further cognitive pro- challenge to the phenomenon that you've described, right? Which is this, there's this gap between the understanding and the doing. Mm. And uh, and it is something that we continuously, I think, consciously and subconsciously try to close. So what I was going to talk about is sealing in the juices. Mm. Matt. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I've talked about sealing in the juices on a podcast before. Mm. Probably. Uh, but you, of course, know the importance of sealing in the juices. Yes. Right? Oh, I, that's why you sear meat, Pete. I, yes. I, it's uh, it's just science, right? Like when you yes. think about it, the sear creates this unbreakable, this unbreachable barrier uh, in, in your steak or what have you that makes uh that makes it impossible for the juices to leak out. So you'll have a, you'll have a, a dry, tough piece of meat. If you don't sear it to seal in the juices and right. a, a moist, satisfying piece of meat. If you, uh, if you do, right? Well, of course, as we all would have known from award-winning late 20th century avant-garde playwright Mac Wellman, sealing in the juices is a vast cultural and artistic sham. <laughs> uh, but, but no, uh, an artistic cultural sham. But no, yeah. So, so of course, as I think you may or may not know, that's not what searing does, right? Um, and what we're talking about to really simplify it for folks who aren't familiar with this stuff at all is that when you cook meat, right? Uh, there's a two-step process that you often in, <laughs> endeavor upon, which regardless of the type of meat, right? This often happens. There's other techniques you can use. There's particularly ones that are in vogue right now. But one of the traditional techniques for cooking meat that is broken up into a variety of sub-techniques across cultures all over the world is to cook the outside of it at a very hot temperature or in direct contact with something really hot, and then to more slowly cook the inside of it, right? You sort of cook the outside with a very high temperature, and then you expose the whole thing to a, a lower temperature for a longer period of time. The and, and so what is actually happening, right, is that the high temperature is causing uh, Maillard reaction and other sorts of chemical reactions on the surface of the meat, which adds flavors, right, by the creation of complex chains of proteins. Something. It, me- it messes with the protein in such a way that, yeah. It, yeah, that it creates flavors. Also texture. Right, right, right. And, and so, yeah, flavor and texture, right? Whereas you also don't want the inside to be raw. And of course, there's all sorts of stuff about the transmission of heat. You would then want to cook the inside of it uh, so that it it is not, you know, unsuitable for eating. And uh, in the eating, right? So, so one of the things that does happen when you cook a lot of pieces of meat is that the meat still has, because it's a muscle, it still has this, this um, 
reaction wherein the juice, the sort of blood that is still in the meat is withdrawn into the center of the meat, right? While it is being cooked as it sort of tenses up. And then when you're done cooking it and you rest it, it kind of flows back into the rest of the meat, right? Uh, and that's kind of something that happens when you're cooking like a hamburger or, or other kinds of meat sometimes. Um, and that's why you rest it. One of the reasons that you would rest it. The experience of eating meat is you cut into the meat and the juice comes out, right? <laughs> um, but of course, that does not necessarily mean that the searing of the meat is what is keeping it in. Because when you're searing the meat, it's not like there's not juices, right? Like if you cook a piece of meat on a hot pan, there's going to be juice for the meat on the pan. There's going to be rendered fat, right? There's going to be all sorts of stuff from the meat that's going to go into the pan. Right. Um, and still, you know, still, Cooks Illustrated did a thing where they, they did like a visual demo of this. And, you know, uh, as it happens, you actually lose more moisture when you right. sear. Uh, and it's still better to sear. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, Pete, Pete, why is it? You're not even sealing in the juices. But so this, the way in which searing in the juices is similar to acting, other than making things awesome and delicious, is uh, is that the cooks have then looking at the outcome and and seemingly forgetting the experience of what it was like to make it, will themselves believe that what they're doing. Many people who cook meat believe and avow that they are sealing in the juices, even though they themselves experience the juices coming out while they're searing the meat. Right. So they know that that's not what's happening. In an observational sense, in an experiential sense, but the desire to create a coherence. And this is my sort of theory of searing, of sealing the juice, right? My, my theory of searing, um, he could quote Erat Deliciosum, uh, is, <laughs> is, is that the desire to create a coherence between the experience of eating the food and the experience of cooking the food causes the cook to revise the narrative of what they did in order to arrive at what you what you experience. And I think that this happens in other ways too. Um, I think I think that one of the one of the things is uh, a lot of the times you talk about people doing things that are like golden brown is a term that's used a lot, right? Yes. Like cook it until it's golden brown. Yeah, a lot of cooking you don't you can't look at it, right? Like you have to time it, right? Like like it's not good enough to to like understand you have to use a thermometer you right. have to time it for a certain amount of time there's all sorts of stuff that goes into how long you would cook something no, and, and if you if you keep opening the oven your souffle is going to fall so actually verifying that it's golden brown right will harm your will harm right. your endeavor not like universally so we're not quite as wrong as we are when we're talking about sealing in the juices but the notion that a visual verification of the golden brownness of something that's been you know that of a, of a carbohydrate that's been mayarded and whatnot you know that that also is wrong right but it's this but the but that's something that's evocative of the experience of encountering the dish and eating it uh right i mean there's probably no better example in uh culinary in culinary practice at all than than the, the terms that are used to describe wines right mm -hmm. You know, like wines that have noses and, oh, this one is like oak and this one is like raspberries, right? Like, yeah, it might be like oak, but it's not raspberries, right? It's like different. there are different compounds that are in the wine that might create a taste, right, that is similar to the thing that you're describing. But but the thing that goes into the wine is not the thing that is coming out of the wine from the perspective of the audience. Yeah. Uh, another good example is orange chicken, right, which I, <laughs> recent, which I recently learned, right, is not is not made with orange for the most part. That the, the orange taste comes from the caramelized sugars and rice wine vinegar, right, in in the in the reduction that you're making, right, in the sort of sauce that so goes sweet, on. So sweetness chicken. and acids taste like citrus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so interesting. it's called orange chicken and it's colored orange. Right. 
a lot of the time. And so, yeah, you might put some orange slices in it. And I'm sure now there's orange chicken made with orange because, you know, simulacrum and simulacra and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) But like, that's not the idea. And so so it is interesting in these sorts of different modes of performance to think about the desire. So so, okay, if you're sitting down to make orange chicken and you don't know how, you would probably assume it has oranges in it, but you would be wrong. Right. And that is what happens, I think, partially when you are that that desire to reconcile the experience of the eating with the experience of the cooking, which is, I think, similar to the experience of the watching and the experience of the acting. Yeah, there's just this huge gulf in, in, in what's going on. I mean, in in improv, which is the one I'm much more experienced with, uh, it's 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 fundamental. Right. It's it's absolutely fundamental that the audience experiences what you're doing differently than how you do it, mm-hmm. uh, because you're not laughing a lot of the time when you're doing it. And in fact, you have to train yourself not to be funny a lot of or not, not to like do things to make yourself laugh. Right. Like that's not the objective. It's to do things that that provoke the laughter of the audience but through other mechanisms, right, mm-hmm. through other engagements. And I don't want to necessarily do an improv clinic here, but like but it's interesting how much we want sometimes there to be a coherence between the thing that we're watching and the thing as it was produced. I mean, reality TV, of course, is the is a great example of this. The idea that we still want to believe that the thing that we're watching actually happened, quote unquote, actually, quote unquote, happened when, you know, it's either fixed or it's, you know, it's selectively edited or any of this other stuff. And I'm not here to, like, bash reality TV for not being real. Um, I feel like that that ship has already sailed with 12 people on it in six couples who are all going to <laughs> sleep in different beds for four weeks and figure out what happens uh, <laughs> right here on Love Ship. Can we call it Love Boat? <laughs> Why do we call it Love Boat? It's called Love Ship. It's a ship, not a boat. <laughs> we're, we're going We're going to Imagination Sexy Time Island. Can you call it Fantasy Island? No, I can't. I can't explain why, uh, but, but no. So like, so we, I think we, it's interesting because we also have this authenticity culture that is one of the big superficial fashion changes of the past like 20 years. Right. Which is the, and I say superficial, I mean, in the, in the sense of superficial, it is a thing that you encounter on the level of looking at something. And it is a veneer that can be put over other sorts of entertainments. Right. So like, um, I'm, well, I'm thinking about, gosh, man, we're really we're going on some tangents here, but but this is a story two handers. So we're allowed. So like a number of years ago, uh, sorry, I should pause and see if any response to what I said before I keep ranting. I do. Well, it, very briefly, like it, yeah. there there are two sort of things that that what you're saying reminds me of. And and uh, so I want to I want to say those and then say something that I hope will tantalize you and okay. like uh, make you make you consider uh, make you reconsider everything that you've said or thought or believed all you know or think you know like the wizard of willow the power to control the world was in my finger the whole time um the first is the old joke about well why are you why are you looking at for it out here because there's more light out here right and we tend to we tend to look where the light is but that's not where you lost your contact lens you know um the other is, uh, uh, the scene Northcote Parkinson. And I, I, um, I commend to everyone, especially everyone who works in any sort of like business organization, uh, the writing of C. Northcote Parkinson, who the, the framer of Parkinson's law that a task will, uh, expand to, to fill the time allotted to it. Um, and that in any, in any debate, the, in any kind of meeting, the length of debate on an item is inversely proportional to the sum of money involved in, <laughs> 
in the thing under consideration. Um, one of the one of uh, one of the things his his great kind of sarcastic aphorisms. Oh, and by the way, whenever I'm called upon to do like team meetings, to do like leader, you know, leadership stuff, I always start with a demotivational quote from Seam Northcote Parkinson. And one of my favorites is that the man, uh, and it's you know, it's a different time sexism. Uh, the the person not uh, allowed to take decisions of importance will come to regard as important those decisions they are allowed to take. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I like to begin the, the, the meeting (laughs) with, you know, just let's, let's, uh, let's not kid ourselves just because it's, it's our job doesn't mean that it actually makes a damn bit of difference. Um, so that, that like, there is something, there is something about that, here, where we sort of privilege as important the, the, the realm of our competence, you know, whether it's as a viewer or, or in my case, as like a practitioner, as a, you know, as a carpenter of acting and that like, um, that maybe, you know, maybe the, uh, uh you know, maybe the, that that's, um, like a, just a habit of my, it's an availability heuristic or, or I forget exactly. I'm trying to think of the, uh, precise, mm-hmm. um, the the precise cognitive bias that that best mm. describes this phenomenon, but then the other thing with which I want to tantalize you to reevaluate everything that you know or think you know is that like um whereas with sealing in the juices it's wrong <laughs> right, right. Like, <laughs> it's false to a certain extent there there's a way in which the analysis of acting from the point of view of a practitioner is not wrong because those are the things that are appropriate to a practitioner. And uh, from the point of view of a viewer is not wrong because those are, those are things that are germane to the experience of kind of having a perform or watching a performance as, as part of something else. Right. And like the idea that like, Oh yes, clearly this actor calibrated his performance to the, you know, movement of the clouds in the sky and the swaying of, of the, the swaying of the body as he vacillated between two important decisions was perfectly echoed. And of course he modeled it off the, the clouds in the sky that, that came afterwards. Um, no, <laughs> those things were shot on two separate days, probably right. by two separate directors. Like the second unit got the clouds in the sky. It's very, actor time is very expensive. Like you can't, you can't be like taking half an hour to shoot the, to shoot the clouds in the sky on the thing. And like they weren't even sure that they were going to put that shot in until afterwards, right? That association was made by editing and it was made by people who are, uh, who are not the actor. And you're kind of putting agency where there is no agency and, and you're, you know, um, right. You're kind of drawing a connection that was not in the mind of the actor. And yet you're not wrong somehow, right? Because mm. the, the, uh, it's the, the indeterminate vacillation of the, I'm like creating this scene in my head of, uh, you know, in, in this performance's physicality is indeed akin to the, to the kind of formless, aimless wanderings of the, uh, of the clouds in the sky. And it's not per se wrong, uh, to say that. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the major difference uh, uh, that comes to mind between the, th- the things that, um, you know, the distinction that I'm trying to make and the, the, uh, you know, kind of associations you had to it. Yeah. So to use another culinary metaphor huh. and perhaps to approach this from another situation, I think, so what we're going for is we're leaving the, 
stake model for understanding the problem of other minds mm-hmm. and approaching more of a pano chocolate model <laughs> of, of like the value of other minds. Right. So like the experience of making a, a pano chocolate or a chocolate croissant, right. As, as Kanye West would say, hurry up with my damn croissants. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and as the, that is, that is still, I think to this day, my favorite news story, <laughs> I think was that time where the, the International Society of Croissant Makers or some nonsense issued a formal letter to Kanye West informing him that croissants take time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, man, what a disagreement, right? Talk about a disagreement between the performer and the audience, right? The notion that like, well, if your croissant takes a while, it, it probably is, is necessary for it to be any good. Um, so the experience of eating a croissant and the experience of making a croissant are extremely different, right? Uh, in any sort of pastry of that sort has specific techniques that are worked into it that are not, you could not intuit or guess at from the experience of eating it because heat, right? Because they're being done with a substance in solid state and you're experiencing it with that same substance having been liquefied and resolidified mm. that substance being delicious butter, right? Yes. And so when you're making a croissant there, when you make a chocolate croissant, there's really two operations, right? There's other than this sort of worrying about the proofing and the leavening and all that stuff. There's the folding of the butter into the dough, right? Is that you're making these layers and layers and layers of dough and butter by, you know, that the old Mr. Wizard where it's like, you can't fold a piece of paper more than eight times. Mm. I never, I never thought that would be relevant to my real life until I took a class in making croissants, right? Where it's like you put butter on the dough and then you fold it and then you fold it again and then you fold it again and it gra- and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies exponentially even, right? The number of layers of butter and dough and when you cook it, that's how it gets flaky, right? Is these these layers that are in there, and uh, and in the middle you put a little chocolate bar, right? In a, in a chocolate croissant when you wrap it, and then when you eat it, the chocolate has melted and maybe it's resolidified, maybe it's still a little bit melty, but it gives you the sense that you have this pocket that is filled with chocolate, right? Except that when it was made, it wasn't really a pocket; it was a, a folded sheet, right? And and uh, it certainly wasn't a little cylinder. Right. It wasn't like you didn't like make the pop tart and then stuff in the chocolate. Right. Um, Not in the same way. Right. You wrapped around it and whatever. And also the chocolate wasn't in the same form that you experienced it. But once a person who has made a chocolate croissant sort of observes what it's like for somebody to eat a chocolate croissant, they can then intuit that their actions have had a certain sort of effect. Right. And they may perhaps adjust their actions. And perhaps over time, this is how making chocolate croissants, uh, you know, developed, perhaps. Right. Perhaps this is how paste because you have to imagine that development of pastry technique is something that must have taken a very long time because it's so precise and you can screw it up in so many ways. And you can only really try it once a day before modern climate control techniques, right? Mm. Like you, you have to wait for night and for it to get cold and for it to get warm again. You can only do it certain times of the year or in certain places, um, right? Without certain kinds of insulation or whatever. Um, but the notion that the notion that it is incomprehensible for the croissant, sh- for the pastry chef making the croissant to understand the experience of eating the croissant is absurd, right? Like, like the idea that they can't traverse that distance, right? And it is perhaps to the credit of the pastry chefs that I don't tend to think of them as similar to the steak grillers in needing to reconcile the audience, the sort of eating experience with the cooking experience. Um, You know, maybe it's just because it takes so much longer to make bakery stuff than to make 
uh, you know, um, cooking of proteins and fats and stuff. That's really, um, I mean, that's really interesting. It's, it strikes me. Has, has anyone ever tell, uh, told you, uh, to be less self-conscious when you are acting? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. 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 That, yes, that yes. is to say, like, I, it, it happens with, with actor. It certainly happens with me. If you're, if you're an actor and you have any kind of like intellect at all, Right. Um, it, it is not, it, acting is not necessarily a field that rewards intellectual attainment. Um, you know, though, though there are a lot of very good, smart actors, uh, you know, some of them quite scholarly about certain things. Like, uh, you do sort of leave that, leave that behind. Um, when, when you go to practice, what I, I saw an inside the actor studio once with Jodie Foster, who speaks great French, by the way. Um, much less casual, uh, sounding at least than I, I'm not qualified to evaluate. But, but whereas Bradley Cooper sounded like a bro, like broing down, uh, when he was speaking French, you know, um, Jodie Foster sounded very learned when I saw YouTube videos of her, uh, speaking French. Maybe it's her, her just general bearing and stuff like that. But she said, uh, on Inside the Actor Studio that, that, um, you know, being an actor is about crying at all the cheesy parts of the movie when like the, the child is reunited with the dog, like all the most manipulative, uh, you know, uh, dumb parts of the movie, like really responding to that emotionally is a very good quality to have, uh, that kind of suggestibility. Um, you know, as, as an actor and it, uh, generally the actors who are smart deal at some point with, with the kind of the dual lens that you're talking about of kind of understanding the, the, um, you know, the effect that you're going for and also not, not having to let that go. Right. right. Because like there, there's nothing worse. It feel we, we innately, um, you know, feel revulsion against someone trying to make us feel something because it's phony, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, someone, someone trying to like tell us that it's our duty to like feel us a, a certain way. Um, you know, and then <laughs> I suppose unless you're, you're, uh, you know, you're used to being, um, manipulated all the time emotionally. Like it's not something that people like, uh, it's not something that, that goes over well and you got, you got, and it's, it's not effective. Like it takes you right out of, uh, of a particular, uh, dramatic story because you become so aware of someone trying to manipulate, of tr- someone trying to push your button, someone trying to like manipulate you into an effect that you like lose all connection um, with the imaginative life uh, of whatever it is you're you're observing, and so like to a certain extent, the the actor's job is is harder still, harder still than the pastry chefs, Pete. Mm. It's harder than the pastry chefs because <laughs> it's to to know how the croissant is made, to know uh, how the croissant ought to taste and ought to sort of feel in the mouth as you consume it, and then to forget all of that. <laughs> then to let it all go I'm, I'm the marlon brando of baking i just <laughs> i don't let anyone show me a recipe or i don't even want to look at the ingredients while i cook with them <laughs> right? like i want it to be utterly new and fresh every time right it's uh <laughs> You're, so, so pete's referring to the kind of the story of marlon brando not never learning his lines and sort of uh what was he supposed to have done had cards placed around yes. the set with his lines on them so that he could read them uh for the first time and say them say them for the first time with kind of ultimate spontaneity and kind of ultimate uh uh freshness and, and it, it sounds like it works okay for take one you know <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think because I think that the extension ad absurdum for that was supposed to be the island of Dr. Moreau, I uh. think. Right. Where he's just sitting in a chair the whole time with his face all powdered up and uh, and he's doing stuff like that. But but anyway, it, it is it is it is a joke. I, I want to to de-jokeify it. I will suggest that um, that. Yeah, I think. So one of the other things that happens. OK, so so here's how it goes the other way. Right. So um, you and I both know that when you're on stage or on camera in front of people, you both want to have you want to know from some degree of experience that what you're doing is going to result in the thing that you want it to result in. Right. Mm. Like I don't go on camera. I don't I don't go on camera just like with no intention of entertaining or or compelling anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I understand that certain things that I might do are going to result in certain uh, outcomes, but I don't want to be too focused on those outcomes because that interferes with my ability to produce the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which is just and that's a, a trick of, of human emotion and human uh, perception and the and the, the finer qual- uh, faculties of the mind. Um, but at the same time. So so the audience might be tempted to intuit from the performance, the process and the uh, of the actor in a way that they can't really know, while at the same time, the actor might be intuiting from what they have to do in order to do their work, uh, what the experience of the audience ought to be. And I think the big example of this that we've arrived at is when the actor is trying to put that distance between themselves and the social relationship with the audience member. Uh, one acting, one person teaching me an acting workshop at one point, uh, which was very, use, very, very helpful, and and something that I've tried to teach, you know, improv comics that I've tried to, you know, train and help over time is the I love you, but F you with the audience, right? Mm-hmm. I love you, but F you. Like, you're here to watch me, right? I'm not here, I'm not here to make you happy, even if you are, right? But you can't go into the performer. That's not you can't. It's that there is a certain effect that you can create by going into a performance without that mentality. There's also, you hear a lot with writers, the idea of, you know, abolish your inner critic. Critics are small-minded people. They can't create, right? The idea that, that uh, you know, criticism is kind of empty and useless and worthless. And I think that these are mentalities that are useful in the creation mm-hmm. because while you're doing it, it's really hurtful sometimes to be cognizant. It's either it's hurtful from the standpoint that it can hurt your feelings and it's hurtful from the standpoint that it can interfere with what you're trying to do to be really cognizant of that social approval or disapproval of the person who ultimately is going to interact with the work once it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're an actor and you're trying not to appear self-conscious in front of an audience or you're a writer and you're trying not to pander for the approval of your readership. Right. And there there is a discourse in both situations that's sort of like I have to be me. And I and and whoever would come in here and try to criticize me is is worthless. And I think that there is something of a transposition of that mentality into an audience mentality that is that that shortchanges the audience and their role in the whole thing. Mm. And also, if you are just an audience member, you know, well, why would you bother being an audience member? I think that maybe that's the question here. Right. Is on one hand, we've talked about why you would act. Right. You believe that it's sacred. You're trying to create some sort of extrinsic good. You're trying to make money. You already have money and you're trying to find truth. Okay. There's all don't, these reasons. Don't, don't do it because you're trying to make money. It's a it's a guy that's a <laughs> whew, that income that income distribution curve is a pyramid with a very steep side. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> um so so and yeah, there's any sort of re- any sort of reasons why you might be acting. Why you would bother to watch somebody who's acting 
is a, a different question, right? Um, and I think a valid one because we spend a lot of time doing it and we derive a lot of enjoyment from doing it and we talk about it a lot. Yeah, sure. And to the extent that, yes, I think to an extent what we're talking about is worthless in the extent that if you were the person making it, if you were making, say, RIPD2, mm. I don't really necessarily think that going and listening to the Overthinking It podcast on RIPD1 would really give you everything that you needed to be successful. Even though a lot of the suggestions we made on that podcast, I think, were they to have been implemented in the sense of them arriving at the outcome, right? Like if at the end of the day, the movie had the things in that we wanted yeah. rather than the things in that that were in it, I still think it would be better, right? I don't necessarily think that going into making it approaching with that mentality would have really been helpful do, uh, because do you I don't recall know what kind of problems that, it had. That we praised RIPD one for the early scenes for sort of conveying the, for creating a sense of stakes by yep. creating, by conveying the value of the relationship that Ryan Reynolds had with his girlfriend. Uh, yes. that was, uh, I think girlfriend, I'm sorry. I forget the, I forget the story of RIPD one that, that, um, it might've been, how married. dare you? They might've been married, <laughs> How dare you? Uh, but, but with his, with his partner that like, we actually really praised Ryan Reynolds as an actor for being able yeah. to kind of, uh, convey that particular thing. Actually, this is a very good example and we should spend the rest of our time yeah. talking it's about to what he does in Deadpool. Cause he comes back and he does it again later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so go on, go on, go on to unpack what you're talking about here. Well, that, right. Like, so the, the, um, well, I, what I wanted to say, just, it's just that you brought up, it's just that you brought up RAPD. Um, you know, what, what I wanted to say was that I, you know, I heard a, uh, presentation, I think it was a conference presentation by someone who had studied, um, group, creative groups, creative group efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's a, isn't there a Chicago, I forget what it's called. It has some like long elaborate name, Chicago theater company that does like 30 new two minute plays every week, you know, and like the, the show is an hour long and all the plays were written and kind of directed and performed that week by the company themselves and, and stuff like that. And then like, um, you know, uh, uh, some, some kind of like design group that was creating graphics designs for something. And so studied kind of creative teams and the functioning of creative teams. And, uh, among the several insights, and I, this was one of the best conference presentations I've, I've ever seen. And it's something that I, that I have, has given me insights that I like use, use, uh, actively to, to this day. One of the things that they said was that among the other commonalities, successful creative teams have the ability of switching modes. They have kind of a, a bimodal character in that they operate in an ideation phase and a kind of a development phase, which has very flat hierarchy. Everyone is equal. No idea is bad. Um, it has like formal rules around not criticizing your, your friend's ideas and like trying to build on them. Like the, you know, the kind of the yes and mentality and the, the, um, the brainstorming mentality really. It's, there's kind of a brainstorming phase. And then the successful one can switch to an execution phase. And in the execution phase, it is rigidly hierarchical, right? And the, the point is to throw out as much as possible. Um, there's a generative phase where you make as much as possible. And then there's an execution phase where you throw out as much as possible and focus on, uh, the one particular vision that, that you're going to, um, bring about in the, the, um, 
in the theater group, they uh, address the social tension that this causes by shifting the director role every week. Like it was a new, it was a new person. So like, you know, it, 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 no one got, no one was just always shafted. Like it was, you know, someone, someone got, got doing it. And you know, the practically just as, as a practical creative person, a creative person of writing or a creative person of acting or whatever, there is a kind of internal mode switching that, that goes on between the kind of the writing and the editing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's what is it has to do with what is useful to to a particular uh to a particular effort you know um like will will it help you you know play iago <laughs> to to worry about what your girlfriend is going to think of you for being such a, a traitorous villain you know what the <laughs> like is that that's not that's not helpful and so to a certain extent it's like audience i love you but f you you know right, right, <laughs> that's like right. that's the these these things are sort of thought technologies that are useful ad hoc to a particular to a particular challenge you're facing and it's you know it's it's not that all um uh, critics are small-minded people. It's not that that, as Oscar Wilde said, the critic does nothing but bear witness to his own impotence. Um, but the the I, I'm sorry, which is what Oscar t- Wilde needs to believe to be Oscar Wilde. Well, right? right, yeah, fair enough. Um, also, you know, uh, old times sexism, their own impotence. But the uh, the you know, it, it's not that. It, it's that the the critical thought is not useful to you as you're trying to. To make a uh, to make a first draft, our you know uh, fans of our Ted Lasso podcast will remember that we've read Anne Lamott's book Bird by Bird, and that uh, in that she uses the the thought technology of the uh, I'll say the poopy first draft. <laughs> she uses right, right. a different word, but that your your goal is to make a poopy first draft and to make it as poopy as possible. <laughs> right? Like right. The, that, like uh, uh, the and and to a certain extent that has practical value. Right? The the worse it is. Um, the easier you'll be able to kind of slide into the editing mode once it's time to uh, once it's time to take off your ideation, creation, generation, writer's hat, put on your editor's hat, and start killing your darlings. You know the the um, the uh, the worse that first effort is, um, the better off you are. Uh, sliding into the sliding into the editing mode because you have a you have at least a couple gimmies right uh right at the outset. So that that. Uh, you know, I don't know that, that like thinking about these things and thinking about kind of the mode switching, I guess, I guess what we're, you know, what we're, um, what we're kind of arguing towards is that we really need to be more like uh, Ben Affleck, uh, Bradley Cooper, and Jodie Foster. Is that like it really successful creative efforts require us to learn a lot of different languages, right? <laughs> and to- yes, and th- these are our three big models. These are the people who know other languages. <laughs> the guy who sort of learned it when he was thirteen. The guy who sort of learned it in college. And Jodie Foster, who- <laughs> right? Who I think who, who grew up speaking French. It's probably. <laughs> the most fluent <laughs> but that like you know that it's not and and it sometimes makes your voice higher or lower right in order yeah, yeah, to yeah. in order to um uh in order to to do that that like oh uh or sebastian stan to have grown up in that in that other milieu, right, right? right like right. that like uh it it is 
to to a certain extent with yourself as you're acting or whatever your creative uh whatever your creative pursuit is i mean hell maybe your creative pursuit is like writing the annual plan for your department or something like that like that's generation that's like generation of work that that needs to that needs to be done to a certain extent maybe the acting is what you do with yourself you know to to kind of switch between these modes uh to convince yourself that like no the the final outcome doesn't matter what matters is that we generate a lot of material that kind of seems authentic to like just go wherever our go wherever our our kind of intuition and intuition and our associations take us to like no now it's time to sort of kill your darlings and what's important is that you be ruthless as an editor and really you know stri- uh, like uh, Michelangelo you chisel away everything that isn't the statue until the until the the statue emerges right maybe it's to sort of disregard and, and even kind of hold in contempt the audience uh, a little bit as you were trying to create for yourself the freedom to portray certain things um you know as a, as a performer or maybe it's it's uh really like thinking of and kind of cherishing the audience as you you know work technically to make the text intelligible to them right as you work you know to um i i don't know to train your body to do certain things involved in in different kinds of performance like say you're learning like a kind of dance for <laughs> something you're doing or something like that that involves like a very high regard for the audience because if it didn't you know if you didn't care about them you wouldn't have to do a a good job and you know really uh me maybe the acting pete maybe the acting was the friends we made along the way <laughs> oh come on man <laughs> no maybe 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 like the the actual the i i mean we're taught we've kind of broadened out to more um more creative pursuits than than just acting but like it it is interesting that it does rhyme uh with the pursuit of acting with the pursuit of like creating a not exactly false but sort of imaginary um reality that like there is a value in in the skill of creating a, an imaginary reality uh, within yourself that is useful to a- ad hoc to certain, you know, to certain tasks um, involved in, in the creative, in the creative process. And, and maybe that gets at something along the lines of like, what is craft? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's the ability to kind of use yourself in a productive way Um you know, pursuant to the the particular goals, you know, whatever artistic goals, social goals, you know, whatever, whatever you have, um, in order to do that, and and this actually calls to mind for me something that our teacher, our common teacher, um, John Hollander said, which was that sort of uh, a certain kind of mastery consists in the ability to set your own exercises, um. So he, he, we, we took a poetry writing seminar, uh, from, uh, from him and both of us at different times. And we did, um, and, and, you know, at least I, I don't know, in my instance of that, he said, you know, look, I give you these exercises every week because this is like, this is kind of, early steps along the path for you as adults, as adult writers in your careers, whatever. Uh, but as you get better at this, you learn to use yourself and you also learn kind of your areas of comparative weakness or your areas of comparative challenge. And you can kind of set yourself, um, you can kind of set your own exercises in order to work on 
you know, strengthening the areas of practice that, that you feel like, uh, need to be, need to be strengthened. And that, that involves a kind of agency, um, that, uh, you know, that is the goal of a, of a practitioner of a, of a creative endeavor. Also, maybe Pete, maybe it was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Well, so, okay. So, uh oh, that's a, <laughs> never. <laughs> no good thing ever began. So, okay. <laughs> well, I'm trying to. You 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 said a lot of things, and I'm trying to synthesize. I'm trying to understand uh, because this is something you obviously feel very passionately about, and I'm trying to unpack the specific things that you're saying because it's worth not just rambling about it. Um, and I also think that you're kind of undercutting yourself by using that statement. But what you're really saying. So, OK, for performers and for practitioners, I think one thing that I tend to value a lot is the direct through line of instructors. And I think that that's something that you find in the theory and practice of acting a lot as well, in that there is a micro history of performance that is part of the practical application of performance and is part of this notion that the performer needs to bridge the gap between the understanding of their work and the audience understanding of their work without looking solely to the audience as their cue to understand it because that creates the self-consciousness that makes it difficult for them to do their work. So it is helpful to have a mentor or to have somebody who teaches you who can perhaps even make you better than they were. Uh, is is what I, I think Mark Ripito to, to go fully multidisciplinary with this. I think the the famous weightlifting author mm. Mark Ripito once said that the best weightlifting coaches are are, are like failed weightlifters, mm-hmm. right? Like mediocre weightlifters, right? Um, who uh, who worked really hard and just were never that good. And, uh, and, and so that's because they understand what it takes Sure, and, and they also, can impart you, it to somebody with more of a head start to get to where uh, they got, they had to, they had to find a way through. And if yeah. you apply that way through to someone with greater talent, right. The, the, the effects will multiply. Right, 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 right. Though, of course, you know, greater talent, talent, of course, there is also a complex loaded thing because we didn't really talk about in all of our talking about acting, like the, the, the big, the big thing, Right. The big thing with acting, which is that you got to be hot, right? <laughs> which I feel like in our whole tour de force about this, we should address, right? Which is that like, yeah, you know, there is a whole entire school of doing this whole thing that a big part of this is to put attractive people in front of other people for money. Sure. I, right? I and, think it it depends a lot on on what you mean by attractive, right? Like, yes, I, yes. I've, I've seen... I've seen, but it has been explored in every macro or mini <laughs> angle on one in one place or another. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but that, like, um, you know, I I've seen people who who you would think of as as fairly average looking, uh, in you know, were you to meet them in a bar, right? Like, become immensely desirable through you know through the kind of transmogrification of of like story and and their sort yeah. of participation um it's actually something that another actor can do for you it's super helpful in, in uh if you're doing sort of work that involves romance and and love and sexuality and stuff like that if so cuz someone else can kind of endow you with attractiveness by in a way that makes the audience uh feel that so you know i mean i 
I think well, that there like, you go. There's some folded dough and butter right there that doesn't <laughs> appear in the croissant. So, so you're saying that like, so what's an example of somebody? Oh, sure. Who you might I saw, think of as being in a movie because, or a TV show or whatever, because they're attractive, where they're being endowed with attractiveness by an actor who has the skill to do that. I saw. I saw. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's a bunch of name dropping. I saw Helen Mirren do Tennessee Williams Orpheus descending at the Donmar Warehouse in London. Right. Okay, okay. And she, uh, it, it involves this, uh, you know, like mysterious stranger comes to town kind of thing. And, you know, he seduces everybody. Um, and he's supposed to be this sort of like irresistible, you know, darkly mysterious, sexy, dangerous hunk. Uh, right. and, and the guy that got to do it was very good looking, but seemed as dumb as a box of rocks, you know, like <laughs> right, th- right. that was not like, just didn't have any spark, didn't have, and I guess we're not we're not talking about kind of like creating the bone structure now you can't that's for the makeup artist to do like you can't create the bone structure but like helen mirren by like endowing this by sort of treating this person as though he had these qualities kind of made him have all of those you know mysterious irresistible desirable qualities for the you know two hours and change for the two hours traffic of our stage right like for the for the two hours and change that that the the thing was happening and i you know i was there doing acting summer camp with a bunch of other actors with you know teachers and stuff like that and we like marveled at this uh afterwards like at how you know the kind of the the specific ways that that she managed to do it by like looking at him in in a certain way and by like sort of hesitating a little bit when she approached him like when she got close to him on stage and stuff and like the you know the the way you saw through her feelings um these qualities that that uh he was supposed to have so like you know i don't know the idea of and, and this was like a person who was like conventional you know very good looking um but uh would not have have had the effect that the play needed without his acting partner you know being able to to endow him with those things um you know it practically in the course of of doing the thing anyway sorry long long tangent but it was no, an no, interesting it's, it's story good, it's good because it's so okay so it's because i think it's you have to i don't know you have to is such a strong word but that certainly is a phenomenon that is located within the audience. The notion of actors and performances relating to attractiveness. It seems like that can't be something that can just be dictated. I guess you could say it can be dictated by theory, but such theories tend to have lost a little bit of credence over the years, I suppose. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of like. You can sign up for my newsletter and find out 10 new ways to be more attractive. And then, yeah, there's a certain stuff that you can do. But uh, what I'm I'm searching for – so I think what you're searching for is legitimizing the artist's practice in – and correct me if I'm wrong – legitimizing the the artist's practice of acting against the rather – confusing or contradictory or insisting upon itself body of theory of acting right Mm. and the sort of the challenge of the practice of it as distinct from the challenge of the theory of it and in talking about it what i've been struck by is justifying the role of the audience in wanting to watch it like what it is that they want to watch and and what do we what do we lose track of when we forget that the audience wants to watch it and i think that there is a very cheap and tawdry way to go about saying like give them what they want 
blockbuster, right? Like and one that can lead to a whole sort of, you know, broad moral decay mm. of the practitioner, right? Um, if you treat the people involved strictly as commodities for the consumption of the audience, uh, that that is a problem that can present some problems. But at the same time, if you if we treat that thing with just kind of finger wagging shame, then we're not telling the truth about ourselves, I think. No. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think you're right. And it's, I don't know. It's something that, I don't know. It's something, it's something that I, you struggle in that like these, these, I'm not sure that these, these things necessarily have, have that much to do with one another. Right. Like okay. sort of putting, putting hot people in the, uh, nine hundred two one zero reboot or something right, like right. that, right? Like, <laughs> which that, one would think would be an essential part of a nine hundred two one zero reboot? It's almost an artistic betrayal if you don't make an effort, right? Sure. Like, yeah, it, that that, but that this is like this is involved in a different sort of effort, right? Like, I, uh, I think, I think actually one of the takeaways for for me last time was that you know, um lumping uh, that it's it's a useful thing to to differentiate phenomena that i might lump together uh sort of lazily and that you can't this this was my whole thing with the concentric circles uh mm-hmm. early right. on that, that you can't necessarily call all even though we use the same word uh to describe all of these things we can't necessarily um Really make the claim that they're the same, right? Because they're right. they're not yeah. the same in a, in no, a no, whole no, no, lot no. of really in a whole lot yeah. of really important important ways. And like I don't know, like when when I think about like like films and kind of the the beauty of of film stars, I think of that like mostly in terms of marketing, right? Like, d- isn't that you know? Because um, you can you can photograph someone in a way that makes them. Um, you can photograph someone in a way that makes them beautiful. And I think there, there is kind of like a tradition of like finding, uh, I think there is a tradition of like sort of finding people and kind of like through the medium of like light and photography, like the uh, light and motion, you know, uh, finding a, finding a way to kind of see them in a way that no, no one has ever oh yeah 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 uh, seen them before. And, and for this weird example, but uh, Halle Berry and Bullworth, um, I'm not sure it'd been for- photographed quite like that before, um, like, uh, before Vittorio Storaro saw her, uh, you know, sort of did the cinematography for, for Bullworth. I think it was Storaro. Um, I'm, I'm going to get well actually in the comments if it wasn't. And that like, uh, you know, so that like once the, once the camera starts rolling, like you're in a you're in a different world that but that the attra- the kind of conventional attractiveness of people is more useful on talk shows than it, than it <laughs> no I'm serious than, okay. it, than it necessarily yeah. is in um creating the uh, in in creating the work itself because the work itself can be manipulated in all in all kinds of ways but but talk shows can't be manipulated in all kinds of ways they're pretty standardized you know and you got to be able to you got to be able to perform um in that in that field uh as well um and that's like you know the economic reality is that you have to be able to do that in order to sell the really big movies and so the really big movie stars are going to be the people who also or maybe even primarily can thrive in that environment uh you see what i'm saying i may not have squared sure. the circle for you no, no 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 it's really interesting to hear to hear your experience with it having been more in the business because because my experience of it is from working in small independent theaters and those <laughs> kinds of projects where 
I, I would effort to not do that, right? To like not make decisions as to who gets to be on stage based solely off of who I think is going to be the person the audience wants to look at because I want the craft and I want the work to be good, right? And uh, and and I also, you know, uh, recognize that there are people who do that and the the work that results from it tends not to not to be as good, right? And so I think that there are is a lot. There is an experience of participating in performing arts, which, in my experience at least, is related to a certain resentment at the way that the stuff that we see on TV and in the movies is all done by beautiful people, mm. right? That like that like the, the other people aren't represented, right? But it is interesting to consider that they that they might be to a greater degree than you know, but they, but you know, as uh, as Dom Mazzetti says, you know, fitness is fifty percent lighting and fifty percent the light filter in Instagram, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, but that that you might you might see, yeah, because I, I definitely have known people that have looked different on camera than in real life, but I don't know. I guess I feel like I need, I need to, if it really is that, if it really is. So, okay. And the other thing I want to say is there's that a I good, think- and like there, there's a skill to using the, to using the camera, right. right in, right. in particular, in particular ways. I, and this is aside from things like lens selection, like focal length selection, which can have a huge impact on how sort of attractive or how put together somebody looks on, on, film. And I, I I sort of wonder, I, I think of, you know, these kids today, Pete, these kids today and their Instagrams, you know, all taking their selfies. I, I actually kind of wonder if they're becoming really literate, really visually literate, um, in a way that our generation, to an extent that our generation never did. I mean, I was never visually literate because I'm not visual, I'm auditory. And so I'm a musician, not a painter, but the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the just baseline of being able to kind of use and manipulate a camera the way you and I can use and manipulate, say, a word processor, you know, as as a tool for expressing an idea um, with certain affordances that that help you along the way in expressing that idea. I, I sort of wonder if this generation is growing up with like a far greater liter- literacy and a far greater skill. I, and I wonder if it will lead to a far greater sophistication, you know, in terms of media literacy and the, the kinds of things that get put out there as, you know, quote unquote, attractive in advertisements and yeah. in entertainment and stuff like that yeah i also want to address one thing that you just kind of tossed in there without i think adequate glossing um i don't think that you're suggesting that halle berry is not an extraordinarily good-looking human being no 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 i no i'm i'm not but i (laughs) i I think there was a point in her career right like where she went from being a very attractive like a very beautiful young actress to being like one of hollywood's leading beauties the most beautiful person in the world is a sentence i was heard referred to her like on multiple occasions and was she like was she a people she must have been like one of those magazines that does the rankings of beautiful people like she must have won one at at one point at least like i i i believe that she did you know what in my reality and the story i tell myself about the world i live in uh halle berry did and and uh, you know i i think that 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 has to do to a certain extent with a change, a change in the way someone, someone is photographed, you know, and, and also maybe it's them coming into their, coming into their life at a certain age, like coming into their, you know, uh, the, their heightened attractiveness or like whatever, like there's, there's kind of a developmental part of it, I suppose, where she just hit her twenties and, and was off to the races or something. But then, but then like also you gotta be, if you're, if you're a person in film, um, you know, being looked at as your job 
And the ways in which you're looked at as a person in film are so heavily mediated by by other people that it, that it makes a it may yeah. not make make sense to um, ignore them in thinking about that. So, so we're suggesting that to further unpack this, and I think this is really interesting and reflects a lot of what we were talking about. That Vittorio Stataro, Storaro, Storaro, who, who shot is Dick in, Tracy, by the way, yeah, an Italian. Well, I think you're burying the lead, right? Like this is an this. He shot Apocalypse Now, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he shot The Last Emperor, right? He, he is he, he shot. Yeah, he worked star. with he worked with with Bertolucci a lot. Okay, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, and again, remind me, who is Bertolucci again? Bertolucci made The Last Emperor, was the gotcha. Italian Italian kind of, um, you know, sort of socialist director who made uh, uh, The Conformist and The Last Emperor. And um, I think he directed Ceiling Beauty. Uh, right. Yeah. My, my, my film knowledge really ends around the time we went to college because that's when I sort of left the milieu. But like... Uh, but you know, fortunately, I saw Bullworth before that happened. So, so we have this person who did Last Tango in Paris, right? He photographed yeah. to bring it full circle. Photographed Marlon Brando, uh, in in Last Tango in Paris, and has done all of these very well regarded, beautiful movies, and also appears to be a close personal friend of Warren Beatty, who has done a bunch of Warren Beatty's projects up to and including Ishtar, uh, right? And uh, and he did Reds. Right. And he did. And he did Dick Tracy and he did Bullworth. And and so and he did a lot of stuff that's a little bit more disposable because he's a cinematographer who worked. Right. He did Exorcist the beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and a bunch of other stuff like this. But we're but we're suggesting that that person's collaborative work in Bullworth, which sort of happened through this strange happenstance of relationships and disciple, you know, disciplehood of this other famous cinematographer collaboration. Right. This collaboration with Warren Beatty ends up resulting in that the moments in which Halle Berry through her performance intersecting with the cinematography and the relationships ends up as put forth as like the most beautiful person in the world. Right. Which then, Oh, now she's a bond girl. Now she's an X man. Right. She was never these things before, uh, before um, she was photographed by a master cinematographer. And you could suggest, okay, well it's, it's him that did it, but you could also suggest that she it's her, she that did it because she knew how to do it. And she needed a collaborator who knew how to do it with her. Right. Is the idea that part of Halle Berry's acting skill was that were to she to be photographed the right way. Right. She would be able to bring this out. Right. And maybe it's something that is maybe it's inherent to how she looked. Maybe it's some craft that she brings to her performances. But it's part of what she does as an actor that is hard to appreciate from the watching. Right. Like I never would have guessed all this stuff from just watching Halle Berry in movies. Um, it's, it's really interesting. This. And again, we get back to like the desire of the audience to know how the sausage is made, even though. We know that it isn't we should know that it isn't going to reconcile into a satisfying, coherent whole. Right. Because we are going to want it to all match up. We're going to want there to be a clear Jared Leto Joker through line. Right. Of like, well, this person was a jerk when he made the movie. Right. This person is basing his ideas on ideas that we've determined are jerk ideas. Right. And the movie turned out to be not that great. And we don't like it. We don't like him. Right. And there's a really satisfying consonance to the idea that I can reject method acting. I can reject Jared Leto and I can reject Suicide Squad. Right. All in, in one go. And it's like, well, it's all clearly caused by the same thing. Right. And it's like, well, it probably wasn't right. Like different things about 
Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad is a complicated thing. Uh, we'll talk to you about it when you're older, when you can fully appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> but, but like, there's a lot that went wrong with Suicide Squad, and it's interesting. It's just interesting how seductive the notion that the acting theory and the acting process and the acting actor's personal behavior, not only are those things all essentially linked, but they're essentially linked to the outcome. Whereas here you could talk about this crazy chaotic intersection of different people and histories over the course of like the better part of a century that results in something that ends up entirely attributed to this one person, which, you know, she might not have been able to catch the lightning if she didn't have the talent and skill to do it. Um, so I don't want to sell her short, but it's like, but not everybody gets the chance to be photographed by, you know, Vittorio Storaro. You have to be in, uh, Exorcist the beginning in order for that to happen. Um, so it's just, it's just, it's, it's all so interesting, right? Um, it's all, it's all so interesting and it, it makes it fun to, to look at the story behind the story. Yeah, I guess it's just, it's each, there's just this yearning and this reaching from the practitioner to the experience of the audience and from the audience to the experience of the practitioner, but always kind of slapping your hand away from getting too close, right? Because um, there, yeah, there are ways that being a jerk can ruin a project. I've definitely experienced it, right? Like, yeah, maybe if the actor is being a jerk, then it will make the project worse because of it. Um, and maybe when the actor is is being great, it'll make the project better because of it. But the notion that there is this wall, this like semi, there is this kind of oven that it all gets put into and melted and reformulated and made flaky and golden brown, right? Um, what I'm saying is that you don't even want to seal in the juices. You want to experience the juices. <laughs> oh, that's gross. That doesn't work. We're not talking about ribs uh, or steak or burgers. Um, yeah, but, it, but yeah. I mean, it is interesting. The, the temptation to assume that there's a name for this cognitive bias also, right? Like the, or is this still availability heuristic? The, the, the temptation to assume that the facts that you have are the salient ones, right? right? Or it, like representative heuristic in the sense that, okay, well, I found one person for whom their acting theory, their behavior, the outcome of the project all seem to line up. Therefore, in all situations, the acting theory, the behavior, and the outcome of the project must be related to each other. Right. But you're, you're talking about availability, which is like what I see is all there is. Right. Like I've only encountered these things. Therefore, they need to be the important things. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. Um, right. Well, gosh, I think it's uh, I think it's time to leave it there. Thank you for for going with me, Pete, on this uh this journey and and thank you to all the listeners who who accompanied us on it. I feel I feel satisfied that we've gotten through the the uh, thing that I initially wanted to. <laughs> we say, did. We got through it, and that we did not. Uh, that that we didn't do it. All right. So uh, listen, if you want to sign up for Improv One Hundred and One, email podcast Ooh. at overthinking.com. That's you know we're uh, we're working on that, and uh, you know we're doing some uh, clinics on uh, Arlecchino, the uh, the Italian clown of Commedia dell'arte. We're doing some clinics on uh, on yeah. musical improv, and we're doing some clinics on on culinary improv. Ooh, yeah, culinary. There you go. <laughs> Which is watching a lot of that TOC finale season finale is tonight. Can't wait to watch it. Let's see if well, I don't want to give away who's in it because the episode is a big one and has a, it gives the semis as well as the finals. So um, I'm telling you, there was some there was some dope sturgeon and alligator cooking going on there tonight. I can't wait wow. to see how it. Okay, well, we'll be we'll be back with that with that those results next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.
Matt. Yep. Yeah, did, did you ever think that maybe the experience of listening to the podcast would more resemble like an authentic and intimate sit down with us if we put a little more artifice into it? <laughs> you know, if we faked it more. <laughs> <laughs> um like, are we holding ourselves back by insisting on our own authenticity? Yeah, Pete, I, if, if, if you're saying that we're going to start making an outline and editing it before <laughs> we go, it's a, it's a non-starter with me. <laughs> it's my process. It's my process. <laughs>